Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Hey. Happy belated Thanksgiving, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> One day we will have Thanksgiving together. Yes. We both can't do our thing, right. our normal things. Right. Or maybe we should have a Friendsgiving. Oh. <laughs> you know what? It just doesn't flow saying Friendsgiving. Well, you could just have two Thanksgiving, one with your friends and one with your family. I'm happy with two Thanksgivings. <clears throat> what my mom used to do is we would have our regular Thanksgiving, and then on Christmas, around the, like the holidays, she would make an entirely new Thanksgiving dinner just because the food's so good. And I think it's an opportunity to like do something other than turkey. Like yeah. If you know you're having a traditional thing in a day or so, you can do something buck wild. Right. <laughs> or you can do one of those turkeys that's like with pomegranate glaze or, or the, something. Did you see the hot fire Cheeto one? Yeah, that's not for me. You know what? I'm not going to make it, but I would try it. If someone <laughs> put it in front of me. I would have to try it. Right, right. I understand that. My brother deep fried the turkey this year. He was not he was not with us at Thanksgiving. Oh, I mean that's a classic, right? Like now, the uh, deep fried turkey. I will say something. I've had deep fried turkey on Thanksgiving before. My brother did it uh-huh. for Thanksgiving and it's not that good. It's Really? It, yeah, because it's really hard to time it. I mean, it does take only like 40 minutes to cook. Cause you're deep frying it, okay. but it's like this whole setup. You have to do it outside. My brother is like a builder. Like he, like, he's very good with like making shit. So he like, you know, is, and he's just, he's good with that kind of stuff. So he like has this whole like turkey fryer contraption thing, but he fried our turkey one year for Thanksgiving. And it was just like, ah, uh, it's not worth it. It's like, as long as you put enough butter on the turkey skin, it's going to get crispy and delicious. Right. Cause you don't batter the turkey. Right. I I just, it seems like a disaster waiting to happen to me. Like, yeah. And I don't see the benefit of it, but I would, I thought it would at least be really good. So the fact that it isn't, it's not horrible. And my brother overcooked it the two times he's done it. He overcooked it according to him this time. He did it for my girlfriend and her parents because he spent Thanksgiving out here with his girlfriend and her parents. And uh, my mom said he overcooked the turkey again. I'm like, well, see, that's what you get for trying to be creative. <laughs> this year, everyone was spatchcocking. The oh, turkey. right, that's, that's very the hot new thing. That's yeah. where you like. That take... makes sense to me because then it will cook more evenly. But I don't think it's a problem. No, because you're still roasting it. Yeah. So a few things to get out of the way up top. Okay. First of all, do we want to thank our Patreons? From yes, this we month? do. Okay, Rachel. Thank you guys. Take it away, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for contributing to our Patreon. Hope you're enjoying all of our bonus episodes. This week we had Chelsea, Kristen, Lori, Eileen, Elle, and Glenn. Thank you guys. And we also got a comment from Eileen just now about her love-hate for uh, Bobby Flay and Scott Conant. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Eileen. She she hates them and loves them. Rachel has actually almost convinced me to love Bobby Flay. Dude, I don't know what's happening with me. I don't know if it's like me getting older and being more compassionate of a human being or me just thirsting after Bobby Flay. Right. I don't know. I I'm hate sort him. of borderline. I hate him, but I'm kind of at the point where I almost like that he's kind of a dick. I mean, he's going with it, so you got to give him credit for that. He's He's like committed to being a dick, whereas Scott Conant is like... I don't know why everyone thinks I'm such an asshole. It's like, cause you act like an asshole. Yeah. I mean, I like it. He's red hair. I mean, come on. Yeah. 
So we're also going to announce our, our, our contest winner for our reviews. Yes. Um, so I picked out this one. We had a lot of nice reviews this month. So this one, your name is difficult to say, so I'm just going to spell it. F-H Sis Kenf. <laughs> F-H Sis Ken F. So if that's you, you have won the contest. And Yay. you should email us at hollywoodcrimescene at gmail.com to get your reward. So I'm going to read her review. It's really sweet. So I love I love your bitchy sense of humor. And she, sent, she censored bitchy because she knows that technically we are very... <laughs> I think you're allowed to say bitchy in the review, right? You are? I don't know. I have no idea. Bitchy sense of humor and sarcasm. I know neither of you would be insulted by me saying this because people like us know we're like this. <laughs> that's that's absolutely true. But a different kind of bitch mode. Not like, oh my God, I love your $600 shoes. Like, I'm down and funny and super sarcastic. Love it. But more importantly, you tell pretty full info stories with a lot more info than other podcasters. You also have a great flow about you. There are other things. The other thing is I'm in recovery 17 years and truth is it's awesome to hear someone be clean and be normal and the show and show the world you can continue to interact and follow dreams and not just be stagnant in your life. Once you get the gift of recovery and find a new way to live, the world is limitless. You know beyond your wildest dreams. Laugh out loud. Anyways, thanks, great podcaster. Definitely back listening. Uh, sorry. I No, she must have had a typo there. Thanks, ladies, for making a podcast with ladies that don't make me cringe. Like, oh, I drink wine and tell you about the first article I clicked on Google about this relevant story I want to bore you about today. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I get enough of that in meetings. Laugh out loud. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. So well, I we love your review. We don't know if it's a guy or a girl or. I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, but she seems to. So definitely email us at hollywoodcrimescene at gmail.com and we will send you a book and a note. Yeah. Uh, because we love your review. That was a great review. So we'll do the same thing for the upcoming month. If you want to win a book. Then go give us five stars, write a funny review. Um, we'll pick or our just favorite. Give us five stars because that really helps us out. So, and we like we like reading your reviews. Yeah, I really enjoy reading what people have to say. There, it's it's hard to choose. There are some really funny. There ones. was a lot. I, I literally changed my mind like five times <laughs> <laughs> while you were setting up the recorder. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think that one had like a nice story. Yeah, so I they're liked in it. recovery. You know That's what? sweet. We liked it. Okay, cool. Desi, I don't even know what we're talking about this week. You don't? No, I forgot. Okay. So today I'm really excited to talk about this case since I've always found it fascinating and I love the movie it inspired. And that is the story of the Parker Home murder case, which was the basis for the movie Heavenly Creatures, <gasps> oh. directed by Peter Jackson and starring Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky in their screen debuts, by the way. So there's a lot to get to. Yeah. So I'm just going to get right into it. And I, I actually watched this movie last night because I hadn't seen it in a very long time. I saw this movie for the first time when I was probably 10 or 11, way too young to probably see it. But it was definitely one of my when I knew moments of like my being bisexual. Oh, good. Because, we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. The last time I saw it was when I was in a relationship with a woman. And I was like, oh, you haven't seen Heavenly Creatures? This is like such a queer movie. We have to watch it together. Right. And we did. And she was like, wow, this is really fucked up. And then she fell asleep because it was a, <laughs> it was late. And then I watched the rest of it by myself, feeling really weird about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was good. I thought it held up. I love the movie. So, okay. So Pauline 
Yvonne Parker, and she's called Yvonne a lot in the movie. I think her parents called her by her middle name, but I'm just going to call her Pauline. She was born on the 26th of May in 1938, and she pretty much started having health problems at a very young age. The thing that she had that sort of was sort of at the age of five was called osteomyelitis, and that's a bone infection. Uh, I think in the movie she describes her bones as being like chalk. So it's some kind of crazy bone infection that really weakens your bones and it fills them with fluids that she had to kind of get sucked out. It's like mucus or something. It sounds really horrible. So she was hospitalized for nine months and underwent very painful treatments, including like several surgeries to like fix this problem and drain these fluids out. It was so painful that even just changing the bandages on her surgery wounds were like incredibly painful for her. She describes this period as her first memories of like, if she goes back, like my first memory is of being in the hospital in severe pain and right. having my bones operated on, That's gnarly. which can't be like a very pleasant first childhood memory. After all of this treatment, she was left permanently handicapped, although not severely handicapped, like she could still move, but she definitely had some, some issues with that. She experienced chronic pain throughout her childhood, and she took painkillers for that for most of her uh, childhood and teen years. She was advised not to perform strenuous sports, and so she was excused from PE, like throughout her whole, you know, school years. She also was probably, most people speculate that that affected her emotionally, like having that illness. She was isolated for several months in a classroom all by herself after some of the surgeries. I'm not quite sure why. But it was for two years after, the two years after she was released from that initial long hospital stay. Although her um, academic achievement didn't really get affected by this isolation, she definitely became more sullen and kind of moody. And I don't know if you remember Melanie Linsky playing her in the movie. Like her first scene, she literally has a scowl on her face. And I saw a bunch of pictures of Pauline around this time when the movie took place. And she has that same face. (laughs) So it was like really weird to see because, I mean, Melanie Linsky is obviously like the actress version of Pauline. But that scowl was just like so dead on. It was so, I almost laughed out loud when I saw it. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) She (laughs) nailed it. I mean, clearly she saw the pictures and, and nailed that look. Pauline came from a working class background. Her father was the manager of a fish shop and her mom was... Like she ran a boarding house outside of the inside the family home. Wow! So I don't know if you remember in the movie, like they always had tons of guests around the table at breakfast and dinners. Um, but that's like a weird thing I think to be a teen girl and to have men staying in your your house as like a boarding house. Like in some scenes in the movie, she's taking a bath and like they're knocking on the door. Ugh. I mean, it just seems I'd be like so irritated. I would not be happy about it. It's like, but I mean, obviously they had to do it for money, right. so. The father, when he he testifies at the trial later about his daughter's character, he kind of painted her as moody but very ordinary girl with no serious psychological problems before she met Juliet. That was his testimony, but people kind of speculate like a typical father of that period. He didn't really know his daughter that well. Yeah. So it's sort of taken with a grain of salt. He really didn't know what her psychological condition was before Juliet. Now, Juliet on the other hand, or sorry, not on the other hand, she had also been very sick her child, her whole childhood. She had various respiratory ailments from a very young age. Um, Some of them were very severe, including a case of pneumonia when she was sick six, sorry. Uh, she almost died actually from that 
case of pneumonia. And then she does eventually get tuberculosis. Oh my God. So she, in addition to that sort of physical health problems, she also was in London during World War II during the um, Blitz. Right. So she had severe what they called bomb shock at the time, which is kind of like shell-shocked for like soldiers. PTSD. Basically, but there was no diagnosis for PTSD at that time. Right. So she's in London with her mom, like ha- being like having near misses of almost being literally bombed <laughs> like, right. in their apartment or wherever they were staying. She goes through that. Like you said, it's pretty much PTSD. In addition to that... She, because of her health condition, her parents will start sending her away because she had the TB. They'll start sending her to live with people who live in like warmer and drier climates, which is a typical thing. I think when people were dealing with TB, you wanted to get them out of like London, let's say where it's really rainy and foggy and get them into a dry and hot location. That's why my great grandpa moved to LA in the early 1900s. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, Not because of TB, but because for health reasons, he moved out of Montana to I think there's a bunch of things where they thought like back in the day, I feel like people did that. I mean, obviously... Being away from your family constantly also creates some sort of emotional distress on a child because they weren't going with her. They were sending her off to live in these areas when she was a very young child by herself with people she most likely didn't know very well. So according to the mom, her mom, Juliet's mom, when she would come back to live with her parents, she started developing like a real over-dependence on her parents when she would return home, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> she also in the trial, her mom's name is Hilda. She testified that Juliet was very difficult to discipline, demanding and prone to temper tantrums. Now, because this was brought up in the trial and they were trying to defend her by um declare having her declared criminally insane, a lot of people don't really know how much was exaggerated, but none of it seems to <laughs> out of the norm for someone who was sent away a lot by their parents and, and sort of had a pretty traumatic early childhood. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like, it's not like that seems too far fetched for me to believe it. Right. But, uh, anyway, some people thought she was just doing this to get her daughter cl- declared criminally insane. So as I mentioned, Pauline was from a working class background. Juliet was from the exact opposite. She was very privileged. Her father, Dr. Henry Holm, was a brilliant nuclear physicist, and he was a rector of Canterbury University College, and that's why they moved to New Zealand in 1948. Uh, uh, That was, like, one of the reasons why, and also for her health. Like, there's always, like, hey, we're doing it for your health, too. So they start using that thing, like, any traumatic move now, it's also for her own good. So they were very prominent. They lived in one of the finest houses in Christchurch, New Zealand. Her mom actually... I thought was kind of interesting because this is the fifties. She was a like marriage and therapy, marriage, like therapy, like counselor. counselor. And do you remember those scenes in the movie? Yeah. Uh, her mom was also like very cosmopolitan and attractive <laughs> and flirtatious. She kind of had a reputation of, um, being a hoe <laughs> or whatever they would call it back then. <laughs> Promiscuous woman. <laughs> We'll get more into that in a bit. (laughs) So when Juliet moves to this area, she starts attending a school called Christchurch Girls High School, and that's where she meets Pauline. 
And as I, I mean, this, this is like a great opening scenes of the movie where Pauline is just literally scowling in her class. It's a very strict Catholic. I don't know if it's Catholic, but it was like Catholic-y, like with the strict teachers and like very disciplined rules. And she's just constantly scowling. And of course, like Juliet comes in and she's like smarter than every teacher. She like immediately tells this one teacher she made a mistake on her French grammar. <laughs> and so Pauline is like, who the hell is this bitch? <laughs> I mean, you could see why she stood out. I mean, it's like a classic movie character. Right. Where, and I mean, Pauline is like skeptical, but in, like instantly drawn to her. Then they have a scene where they're in art class together and Pauline also breaks the rules. So they just kind of instantly bond. They also bond over their mutual illnesses. Like right. there's a scene where they're sitting on the benches, like while everyone else are, is playing, like exercising and like these old school Jack LaLanne exercises <laughs> right. and they're sitting on the bench, like showing each other their scars. So they had a lot in common. <laughs> they hated everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they just sat on the, the benches bitching. Like that could be us. It could be us. <laughs> so according to Pauline, like later on, she said that they both kind of romanticized this idea of being sick. They they developed an intense and obsessive relationship, like almost from the start. Psychiatrists would later describe this as a mental illness shared by two highly intelligent, dirty-minded girls suspected of being lesbians. Whoa. Which I thought we should put in our promotional package. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, is that our tagline? Right. Suspect, yeah. Dirty-minded girls suspected, suspected of, of being, being lesbians. lesbians. It sounds like the tagline of, like, a pulp novel. Oh, totally. Um, I loved it. They also shared, like, a real like, I don't know what the word is, like a love of imagination. They both had like really vivid, active imaginations, probably because they were children who were isolated. And while you're alone, you're just like thinking up stories and like trying to like kill the time with your imagination. Right. They, like in the, I remember in the movie, they would sort of imagine these fantastical scenarios that they were in. Like they were sort of in these fantasy worlds that they created oh, definitely. together. Yeah. I'm going to talk more about that. During their friendship, like they did numerous things like Rachel was just talking about. One of the things they did was they invented their own personal religion with its own ideas on morality. They rejected Christianity and they worshiped their own saints. They envisioned a parallel dimension called the fourth world. And that's like what you're talking about where they had these, like they would make these clay kind of figures yeah. and then you would see them sort of living it out with these clay figures. The fourth world was a place that they felt they were able to enter occasionally during months of spiritual enlightenment. <laughs> so by Parker, Parker had said, Pauline had said at some point they had achieved this enlightenment because of their friendship. So it was like everything was sort of validating and sort of propping up their obsessive relationship. Well, we only got this way because we have this connection and da right. da da They would also, like you mentioned, sneak out at night and act out these stories. They were um, LARPers. <laughs> they kind of were. I mean, that's the sort of one thing in the movie that I was confused sometime. I was like, well, is she imagining this or is she really walking out in a princess gown? Because that seemed right. Like when it wasn't hardcore fantasy, sometimes she was just coming out in a costume. It was a, it's the movie's directed by Peter Jackson. It's one of his earlier yeah, films. Yeah. It's a very Peter Jackson film. It does. Yeah. When those sequences were playing out, I was like, yeah, this is so him. Yeah. Um, in her diary, which I'm going to mention a lot because her diary was you know, used extensively in the investigation because they basically laid everything out or she did in her diary. Yeah. Uh, in her diary, she wrote of um, how sad it was for everyone else that they cannot appreciate our genius, <laughs> <laughs> which reminded me of everyone. It's just, just because we're pretty, everybody's jealous. 
<laughs> I was like, yes, they have the same kind of relationship as Don Davenport totally. and her friends. So the girls, obviously the next step is like, we're going to go to the United States and go to Hollywood right. and sell our stories and become rich and famous. They also had uh, an obsessive interest in opera. That's like a big part of the movie because they they love Mario Lanza. Um, that was like one of their first little connections. And they also love movies in general. So they, like I said, they started actually writing novels because they were going to sell these novels to be made into movies. Pauline's novel was called The Donkey Serenade, and Juliet's novel was called The Beautiful Lady in Blue. I'm kind <laughs> of interested in the donkey <laughs> They also thought that they were really great opera singers. <laughs> I love these girls. They have so much confidence. So, so part of the thing they had, they had a group of celebrities or stars that they called the Saints. And some of these people that were saints were James Mason, Mario Lanza, Orson Welles, Mel Farrar, a few other people I never heard of, and Ava Gardner. <laughs> so, like I said, they were like, the, everything was leading up for them to go to Hollywood. They're going to sell their novels to be made into movies. One of them would marry James Mason. <laughs> And then they were going to be like best friends with Ava Gardner and Marilyn Monroe and whatever. And how old are they at this point? Fif- 15. 15? Yeah. Okay. At some point, Juliet has a recurrence of TB. Uh, she's sent to go to a sanatorium to recover from this. I don't know if you remember the scene in the movie. She like coughs blood I in do. the classroom. During that period, I'm not going to really get into this because I couldn't find too much, but it is in the movie. She, Pauline fucks one of the boarding house guests. And like the father walks in on them in the movie. Oh. And they kick the guy out. Yeah. But I don't think he was that much older than her. But if she's 15, he's too old, even if he's 20. Yeah. But I don't think she ever tells Juliet. And I do think she felt guilty like she had done something with another person, like that was right. intimate. Even though they weren't intimate at this point. Intimate. <laughs> my, my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so even though uh, Juliet is in this sanatorium, they still maintain like a, you know, correspondence. They're constantly sending each other letters. They start calling each other Charles and Lance. uh, And they start developing a really like a fantasy kind of empire about the lands of Borovnia and Volomnia. And I think that's where it starts getting into that more intense fantasy sequences that are more violent. They depict things like murder, suicide, rape, seduction, betrayal, all of this kind of stuff are in these new fantasies. They cook up plans to go to Hollywood and shoplift. <laughs> They're going to... Oh, and they uh, at this point also before... I think it was before she went to the sanatorium, Juliet found out that her mom had started having an affair with one of her clients. And that's in the movie as yeah. well. His name is Bill Perry. And they try to blackmail the mom to get money to go to Hollywood. <laughs> like that's like... And it fails because the mom's like, fuck you, your dad knows. <laughs> At this point, Pauline writes in her diary, we have an extra part of our brain that can appreciate the fourth world. Only about 10 people have it. (laughs) (laughs) They were in awe of their own talents as writers and singers, uh, saying that they're both astoundingly good at like whatever they do. I mean, here's the best part about this story. I'm like in awe of these girls. Like, oh my God, these girls are so rad. They're so cool. But if it was two teenage guys acting like this, I'd be like, dude, yeah, they're fucking dangerous. (laughs) And insufferable. <laughs> and mediocre. And like, mediocre. Oh, I wish I had that much confidence for a <laughs> mediocre piece of shit. <laughs> right. But you can see, I think, in my opinion, like we can get more into it later, I think Pauline was really dragged into this fantasy by Juliet. 
Like Juliet had this. I think Pauline was looking for something. Look, Juliet. Juliet is the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, she is. Okay, she is, and she's sure. pulling Pauline out of her depression and her isolation and into this crazy situation. Right, and she's this hoity-toity sort of right. uh, cosmopolitan girl, and she's a she's even though they have so much in common in their internal lives. Their external lives are so different. So it's very seductive to Pauline. Well, and Juliet also has that luxury of being from a wealthy family where they're kind of indulging her because she was so traumatized or they feel guilty. Do you know what I mean? It's like that spoiled rich girl where they kind of give her whatever she wants because they have a, a lot of guilt, I think. Anyway, the relationship at this point was next level. That even the parent, even the neglectful parents were like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? So... They started finding the relationship more disturbing, and more importantly, they started worrying that the relationship was sexual. And obviously, at this time, homosexuality is still considered a mental illness right. and like something you don't want to happen and you want to stop before, like nip it in the bud. Like, so both parents attempt to kind of separate the girls in whatever mild ways they could. In 1954, Henry Holm. Uh, Juliet's father had to resign from his position at Canterbury University and he was returning to England. Her mom and her dad were getting divorced. At this point, the affair was out in the open. She was in love with Bill Perry. And it was decided that Juliet, because she had recently had this TB, you know, recurrence, that she was going to be staying with her aunt in South Africa, where the climate was once again warmer, warmer and better for her health. But they also kind of were like, oh, this is also a great way to separate these two girls and kind of, you know, end this relationship permanently. The girls obviously are hysterical when they uh, hear this news. The the homes actually encourage the girls to believe that Pauline might be allowed to accompany Juliet to South Africa if her mother permits it, which I find to be a very bitch move. That's (laughs) Like they're basically putting it on the mom to say yes or no. So she's going to take the blame, even though they had no intention of letting Pauline go to South Africa with Juliet. Right. So Pauline obviously knows that her mom will never allow her. Wait a minute. Pauline was going to go to South Africa or Juliet? Juliet is being sent to South Africa. Right. Oh, right. Her parents let them think, well, maybe Pauline can go with you if your mom says it's okay. Right. Knowing full well the mom won't say it's okay. Right. But it's kind of like putting, passing the buck to her. Right. And Pauline also knows her mom is not going to ever allow that. Right. It's insane. And she really, at this point, I mean, I think it had been a low grade hatred of her mom. It's like one of those things where it's like, you see how cool Juliet's mom is, like smoking and being glamorous. And then you see your fucking frumpy mom. Right. Right. (laughs) You have like no appreciation for her. She got busted for sleeping with that guy. Like. Do you know what I mean? It's just like this like ongoing thing. And now this fucking thing is happening. And she's like, my mom's not going to let that happen either because she fucking sucks. <laughs> How dare you not let me move from New Zealand to South Africa? <laughs> in, in Pauline's mind, the only obstacle in her way to have complete fucking happiness is her mom. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. 
They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. The mom does agree to let Pauline spend a week with Juliet in June, in early June of 1954. And that's sort of in the movie where they go to this house and have this like thing where they're frolicking and like whatever the feels. And that's the sort of big scene where they enact how each saint would make love. Right. That's the scene where they basically have sex. Although it's kind of like, what's really happening? Is this a fantasy? They're kind of naked, but they don't really show anything. And they're pretending. I think in this previous scene, they had seen the third man with Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. So it's like, he kind of cuts in to the sequence as well. But basically they're pretending to be those saints, which are the actors they loved. Um, After that, Pauline writes in her diary, we have now learned the piece of the thing called bliss, the joy of the thing called sin. So An orgasm. I guess they did something. I mean, there's a scene, I had forgotten about that scene, where you see Pauline's face and she's just like smiling blissfully and then Kate Winslet comes up. And I'm yeah. like, is she just going down on her? Yes. Like, I think they did really fuck. They had to. They were just, so, I think they were using these men in place to sort of rationalize it in their mind like it's not bad we're pretending to be right it was just one step up in a fantasy like yeah yeah well how would they do it let's practice right yeah, i mean i feel like that's a common thing when you practice you'll you'll find a reason why it's a game or it's part of something to right do sexual stuff so it's around this time like after this sexual experience the girls start to form a plan to murder pauline's mother and leave the country to go to New York or Hollywood. Pauline writes in her diary, why would mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. <laughs> Thousands. So why not mother and father too? <laughs> like how he gets dragged Throw him it. in. Murder in their eyes was just a solution to a problem, says a writer named Peter Graham. I'm going to talk about him a little bit more. He's a lawyer who wrote a book about the case called So Brilliantly Clever, which is a phrase the girls use to describe themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I mean, they are just, I love them. Right. They're horrible, but (laughs) 
uh, you gotta love that level of confidence. It's, that's um, really, it's stunning. So the girls decide upon a plan that might look like an accident. By June 19th of 1954, it was a definite plan. Like it had gone from like, let's just talk about it to like, okay, we're definitely fucking doing this. Their idea was that they'd give her one good blow to the back of the head and she would fall dead. Then they would roll her her body down the bank and it would look like she fell and hit her head. (laughs) Uh, Pauline writes in her diary on June 19th, our main idea for the day was to murder mother. Now, do you remember that? How she says murder in the movie? She says murder? Moiter. Moiter. It's like moiter. <laughs> like, it's actually written like that in her diary. Like I'm reading literal snippets from her diary, which is a lot of the um, narration from the movie is snippets of her diary. Right. And you can find it online. There's like bits and pieces around. Uh, yeah. I just love moiter. It's like, what is she like? <laughs> what is that's not a... She's like a gangster from yeah, New York. Yeah, it's and... like moiter. <laughs> I can't even say I'm it. not a moiter, his ass. Our main idea for the day was to moiter mother. It's a definite plan we intend to carry out. Now I'm all like, it's a definite plan. We're definitely going to carry it out. <laughs> we have worked it out carefully and are thrilled by the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. <laughs> Jesus. On June 20th. 1954, she writes, I tidied the room and messed about a little. Afterwards, we discussed our plans for moitering mother and made them a little clearer. Peculiarly enough, I have no qualms of conscience, or is it peculiar? We are so mad. <laughs> it's like, yes, bitch, you are. So on the night of June 21st, which is the eve of the murder, Pauline writes, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang, and Deborah, by the way, is a name she calls Juliet and, and Juliet will call her Gina sometimes. That's like little fake names they use. Right. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moiter fully. I feel very keyed up as though I were planning a surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd yet how pleasing. <laughs> Dude, it's so crazy. It's so dark. The next morning, she wrote of feeling very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have a pleasant dream, though. Pauline recorded in her diary, the last thing she recorded was, it's the day of the happy event. I'm sorry. She's, ta- I mean, she's talking about it they like They don't it's... seem very conflicted no, at this point. This is like going to prom for them. It's very diary speak, too, right? Like, Oh, yeah. I mean, other than moiter. <laughs> So on June 22nd, 1954, Juliet collects a half brick from her home, puts it in her shoulder bag, and goes to Pauline's house. The duo put the brick in a stocking, and then they go out to a lunch with Pauline's family before traveling by bus with Pauline's mother, Honora, up the up the Christchurch Port Hills to Victoria Park, where they have afternoon tea, and then they're going to go on this walk down a secluded path with her afterwards. Did they plan this walk? Yes. Okay. They knew exactly, because this walk is like, if you remember, it's in this yes. foresty area, and it's kind of it's like a, a way. It's a secluded path. While they're going on this walk, Juliet drops a pink stone that they had actually taken from something, a piece of jewelry at Pauline's house so that when the mom saw it, she would think that it was something that was hers. As she leans over to pick up this rock, I mean, sorry, the stone, Pauline, she, her plan was that she was going to hit the mom with a brick that was wrapped in a stocking. So it kind of had like a long, do you know what I mean? It, yes. like, it was stretching down in this stocking and they kind of thought that one blow would kill her. That's not the case. 
So this scene is really brutal in the movie. It is. I mean, it's insanely brutal. They hit her numerous times. At some point, Juliet takes the stocking and also starts beating the mom. There's blood everywhere. Everywhere. They're covered in blood, by the way. Like, and this scene goes on for... I don't know, four minutes. It's a, it's like there's no music in the scene. Yeah. It's, it's just, just the hitting of this brick and this poor woman is crying. It's awful. And she also, the first hit is so terrible because she doesn't know, like she thinks something happened. Like right. you would never think your daughter just hit you. Like, right. They leave this path after murdering the mom covered in blood and go back to the tea or where they had just had the tea. Agnes and Kenneth Ritchie, who own the tea shop, are the ones who meet them. And they tell her that Honora has fallen and hit her head. I mean, can you imagine these girls covered in blood saying that to you? Because <laughs> it's such a like, well, why are you covered in right, blood? Right, right. Like, this makes no sense. When her body is found, she has lacerations, major lacerations, all around her head, her neck, her face, and she has injuries to all of her fingers. Police discover the brick in the stocking in a nearby woods. Not so brilliantly yeah. clever after all. No, they didn't plan everything. The girl's story of this accidental death falls apart pretty fucking quickly. No one for like literally two seconds thought it was an accident. Right. And I mean, basically the, the girls covered in blood was the dead giveaway. <laughs> right. Uh, if you see the scene, you'll see exactly what I, I mean. I remember when I saw the scene, cause I know the story when I saw that scene and saw them come out at the beginning of the movie, cause it kind of goes to flashback. I was like, whoa how did they think they were gonna get away with that like it's so stupid it's one of the more poorly planned murders it's weird how planned it was but they didn't think of the aftermath right i guess if your plan is oh it'll take one hit then you probably never thought it wasn't gonna be like that as i mentioned this the murder had been completely outlined in pauline's diary for weeks up to that point and the police quickly arrested the girls for her murder a pathologist named colin pearson reported after examining the body that there were 45 external injuries, 24 wounds to the face and scalp, fractures to the front of the skull. Uh, and it was reported that the, that the force, the, the hits were so strong that the brick actually came out of the stocking at some point wow. because it like just ripped through. Cause that's how brutally they were beating her. Despite all this, the girl saw the murder as a brilliant success. <laughs> what are they, Trump? <laughs> I know, exactly. Juliet is reported to have said to Honora, uh, have to said that Honora knew beforehand what was going to happen and didn't seem to bear any grudge. We have both been terribly happy since it happened, so it is a blessing in disguise. Wait, they said the mom knew it was going to yeah, happen? they made it look like the mom was like, you know what? Murder go me. Ahead. Like, wouldn't she just be like, fine, go to South Africa? <laughs> that <laughs> right. seems like the better choice to me if she knew about it beforehand. So the girls are arrested, and this is the trial of the century for New Zealand, basically. Right. One odd thing that kind of came out in the initial investigation was that Honora had never been married to Herbert. Whoa. The, the father. They just lived together in sin, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's not my opinion. This is the opinion of the times. But. Okay. So when Pauline goes on trial, she has to start using the, the last name Parker. Up until that point, her last name was Repair or Rippert. I don't know how to say it. Her Ripper. dad's last yeah. name. So that's when she starts going by Parker, once the trial starts. Okay. Up until that point, she had a completely different last name. The trial, like I said, was like a huge sensational affair. It was just escalated by the fact that there was possible lesbianism right. and insanity like, thrown into the mix. It kind of had it all I mean, and that re- times. And that really is like for overly religious, bigot- bigoted people who already hate uh, gay people. They're like, see, it 
causes you to murder people. Yeah, see what happens. Right. So the prosecutor is not really having any of the insanity defense. He says that psychiatrists have contradicted each other. In his opinion, this plainly was a cold, callously committed and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent and perfectly sane girls. They are not incurably insane. My submission is they are incurably bad. (laughs) He winked when he said that. In the opinion of other psychiatrists, uh, and these were people, I think, hired by the defense, the girls' contempt for the Bible and belief in the fourth world were evidence of their insanity. The jury were told that the pair thought they were morally right in killing Honora. The girls suffered, uh, they claimed that the girls suffered from paranoia, delusions of grandeur, and delusions of ecstasy. Each (laughs) affects the other and aggravates the process of disease. Um, The girls actually don't do themselves any favor during the trial. They sort of act really bored during the proceeding (laughs) and spend their whole time whispering to each other like giddily. They were so pleased with themselves, says the writer Graham that I mentioned before. They were always aware that what they were doing was wrong, he says. Uh, It didn't help their case that they said, yes, of course we knew it was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They actually said that? They actually said, like, I was like, hey, like the whole insanity defense is that you don't know the difference between right and wrong. And right. Like, oh, we knew it was wrong. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're like, Mm-mm. I mean, they're smart girls, but it's like, but they're something... ditzy in this, this yeah. case. Julia also said, you'd have to be a moron not to know, know that. <laughs> uh, this guy, Peter Graham says, I think they were suffering from fairly serious personality disorders, but I don't think they were insane legally or medically. I mean, yeah, I agree they clearly with that. Have personality disorders. So on August 28th, 1954, after, after deliberating for two hours and 12 minutes, a jury found them guilty of murder. They were too young for the death penalty and they actually end up only serving five years each in prison. Wow. One of the police officers who escorted them from the court after the verdict said that she overheard Juliet whisper to Pauline, the old girl took a bit more killing than we thought. <laughs> we thought. Yeah. And then the police officer like scolded her or reported her. And she said that Juliet said back to her, oh, aren't we the perfect little police woman? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just insane to me that they're like, I was like, they are children who got like, I don't think they recognize the gravity of what they've done. I'm sorry, but talking back to the police, we stan. I mean, it's pretty... (laughs) Look, they're horrible. They're horrible people, but this story is incredible. They really have some attitude. (laughs) I will give them that. So it's like when people, it's like when people, uh, you know, brag about, oh, I'm such a bad bitch. I'm such a bad bitch. And then they're crying, like Martin Shkreli, where he's like crying in court. Right. It's like, like, you're not that bad. Right. Look at these two bitches. I mean, at least they are. I mean, they don't, they don't cry about it, I guess. So some people speculate that the the terms of their release was that they never see each other again for the rest of their lives. But the state or the the government or whoever's in charge, the secretary for justice said that there was no condition set upon them. And actually this case was taken as evidence for the moral decline of teenagers in New Zealand. Wow. (laughs) It was like used as like, see, right. Yeah. Do something about these teenagers. Okay. So what happened to these two girls? Yeah. You might be wondering. Well, a few months after Heavenly Creatures was released in 1994, it was revealed that Juliet Holm had changed her name and and was now living as Anne Perry, a well-known mystery writer. After her release from prison, she spent time in England and the United States, later going back to England 
to settle. And she actually became a Mormon in 1968, by the way. Okay, that's a weird turn. Uh, very weird. She... She's a very successful writer. Um, she Her first no- novel was The Cater Street Hangman, which was published in 1979. She kind of writes historical murder mysteries and detective fiction. She has one character named Thomas Pitt, who's sort of a recurring character that's very popular. She's published 47 novels and collections of short stories. Her story, Heroes, first appeared in the 1999 anthology Murder and Obsession and won the 2001 Edgar Award for Best Short Story. So she's a very successful writer. When this came out, it was like fucking shocking because no one knew who these girls were. And the fact that she's like a murder mystery writer is just even more insane. Right. So she's initially was sort of like staying out of it, but then did several interviews with like 60 Minutes and like a bunch of things. Does she regret Well, I'm going to tell you, Rachel. (laughs) She's got some interesting thoughts on it. So once she's outed uh, as Juliet, she does an interview, and she describes herself as having wept for the first three months in prison, repenting for her crimes. And here's some quotes from her from this interview. It was pretty rough. We had two showers a week, and there were two toilets for 30 or 40 of us. One was out in the open, and one had half a door. But you get used to things, and you don't make a big issue of it. She said her coping strategy in prison was simple. Own your behavior. I think the first thing you do is you don't blame anyone else. You think, I'm here because I deserve to be. It's nobody else's fault. Don't get angry. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Make friends with people who were there. She said that she... She makes friends with anyone anywhere because she was in prison and she listened to their stories of the other prisoners. And that was sort of what got her on this path of writing by like talking to these prisoners and hearing their stories. Almost everyone has something they'd rather forget. According to the guy, Graham, who wrote the book I mentioned, he says that this is not the case at all, that Juliet in prison was just as conceited and egotistical as she was before uh, she went to prison. He quotes revealing letters written to a friend of her mother, a friend of her mother's named Nancy Sutherland, in which she boasts about how many pages of poetry she had to read, her love of Italian language and culture, and even how many jerseys she had knitted. Later, she wrote to the same friend of what marvelous opera singer she and Pauline were. <laughs> I like how this guy's like, that's not what happened. Right. Look, I believe it's a combination of both. I, this is what I believe. I believe she absolutely w- still was that conceited person and still absolutely like insufferable in that way. You're not going to change overnight. No, you're not going to change overnight. And she was also a teenage girl and super entitled. Well, that's also, I think, a bit of a defense mechanism, acting like you're better than everyone and that you aren't the same as everyone else in prison. Look, right? like, I did that when I first went into rehab. Right. And I didn't even... I I was a low bottom alcoholic, but I did that as a defense mechanism to act like my life was okay on the outside. Yeah, like there's that kind of even though I was exactly like them. I mean, she goes on to talk about how she paid her debt to society, and she never thought her her like new identity would be revealed. So when the movie came out, um, rumors started swirling that it, it was her. I guess I don't know. I guess when you change your name, by the way. She took the last name of her stepfather. I was going to say. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of like interesting. Yeah. I thought that was really. Because <laughs> he kind of fucked everything up. Like... Right. So she was worried. I think when this initially came out, she's like, I was worried I would lose everything. I'd lose my career. I'd probably kill my mother. I'll lose my home. All of this kind of stuff. And she didn't lose anything. Um, she said, there's nothing you can do except get on with it. And I'm certainly not the first person this has happened to. I hope now it's golly nearly 60 years that we can let it go. Okay. Pauline changed her name 
to Hillary Nathan, and she actually also moved to to England. And I think both of them ended up in Scotland, which is not a big area. No. And supposedly they've never seen each other again, but it is weird they ended up in the same part of the world. After her release, she tried unsuccessfully to become a nun. She went to library school in Wellington and worked for a time at University of Auckland. She later was found living as a recluse and a devout like a, she's just like a devout Catholic now, which is interesting to me that they both became super religious. Yeah. And she also, like I said, is in Scotland. So this woman was interviewed who I guess is a friend of um, Hillary's, her name now, and they were close friends as children and then became friends again later in life. And she said that Hillary failed to become a nun, but now she is a nun in her own way. She lives in solitude. She's deeply religious. She leads a very unusual existence. She hasn't got a TV or a radio, so she would never have heard what Ann Perry had to say, and she wouldn't care. She hasn't seen the movie, obviously, or even knows that it came out based on the murder. She doesn't have any contact with the outside world. She's a reclusive, really. She's a devout Roman Catholic and spends much of her time in prayer. I mean, I read a little bit more of this interview but it's like she really had a lot of guilt oh, about yeah. what happened. I oh, mean, obviously yeah. it was her mother and it was her idea. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that makes sense. But she basically has been repenting her whole life right. for what she did. Right. This case has sparked like a lot of psychological debate debate about like what, because they weren't a formally diagnosed with anything at the time. And now we just know much more right. based on whatever many years later, there's just more diagnoses. You can figure things out. So people have speculated some things. One of the more common ones is that Juliet had extreme narcissism that was, that will arise out of an attachment disorder. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. A New Zealand psycho psychotherapist named Judith Morris and she specializes in children and adolescents. She says that this disorder typically will develop when children lose security and trust in adults because their basic needs are not being met as a child. And obviously we know Juliet was separated from her parents numerous times in her young life. As a coping strategy, they become desperate to hang on to whoever they feel can they can trust. And that obviously happened between her and Pauline. For those who are insecure, it's a way of taking control and making their environment predictable. So another common sort of symptoms of narcissism are overinflated egos and outbursts of like violence or temper tantrums when you kind of don't get what you want. Right. That guy, Peter Graham, he kind of takes things a bit further. He considers psychopathic traits closely related to narcissism. And doctors can actually refer to this as narcissist psychopath type. So there is like a diagnosis for that. Um, he says psychopaths are often charming and convincing liars, and we know this, and in some cases, violent behavior is likely to be premeditated rather than impulsive. Both girls seem to have been subject to mood swings. They both, both may have had bipolar disorder, but were undiagnosed because I think it was recognized in the 1950s, but it wasn't really understood completely until the 70s. He thinks Pauline was actually more complicated than Juliet. I mean, she seems like textbook, I think, with a lot of these things. <laughs> He thinks that meeting Juliet bumped up Pauline's borderline personality, like it right. really kind of uh, put through the like through the fi like the gasoline on the fire of whatever was brewing there. Well, and I absolutely believe if Juliet is a narcissist slash or and or psychopath, that she absolutely could have used that interview to make herself sound really good, like right, and just because like narcissists know all the right things to say. Yes, they're really good at that, right. and like. 
that whole, I mean, like, look, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just someone who's like been in psychiatry my whole life and also knows a lot about, knows a lot about this stuff from my own experience dealing with people. In my experience, like sociopaths and narcissists, they know really well how to mirror, mirror human empathy and sort of repeat things that people want to hear. Right. Because it seems more likely she can say, like, the truth to me would be someone who's like, yeah, I was a fucking asshole, but you know what? I worked on things. Like, she right. sells herself as this perfect individual who's, I cried for the first three months. It's like, no, you didn't. Right. Like, I don't doubt you had crying fits throughout right. the first three months, but to pretend that you just cried and repented for three months, right. I just don't buy it. She like, probably cried because she didn't get her way. Yeah. So she does kind of make everything a bit too clean and in her favor for right. me to find it 100% believable. That guy, Peter Graham, goes on to say, I have suggested that you do see this internal struggle struggle going on with Pauline. She has a dark side and a good side. In her later life, she ends up headmistress of a special needs school for children teaching kids how to ride. Even looking back on her diary, there were days when she was out with her pony, giving the kids rides and absolutely loving it. I would say she has lived a life of repentance. She has become very religious and goes to mass twice a day. Juliet has become Mormon, but it seems Anne Perry, consciously or unconsciously, has reworked the raw facts in her imagination to such an extent as to create a piece of fiction. And I'm going to give you one last thing that sort of sums it up for me with Anne Perry. She really does no favor for herself in my book with the following quote that was at the end of her 60 Minutes interview, I think. The interviewer asked her, did she think about Honora Parker, the victim of the crime? And Anne Perry says, no, she was somebody I barely knew. Whoa. And that's after the movie came out. Like, this is her as a... That's cold. That's cold. That's really cold. Even if that's true. <laughs> yeah. Like, she probably was like, well, of course not. Like, yeah. like, that's like, that's like one of the moments I feel like where the sociopath thinks they're doing the right thing, but they accidentally tell on themselves. Totally. Like, well, why would I care about someone I hardly knew? That's a human thing to say. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> human beings say this. Because I didn't know her, they're going to know if I go overboard. So it's like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's like a sociopath That's to a me. tell. That's a tell. I mean, and she didn't not know her. I right. Mean, that's even, that's not even true. It's, it's such a weird thing to say because that wasn't the question. Right. The question was, do you think about her? Like, how do you not think about murdering someone? I would imagine you probably think about that. Yeah. Like. A lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird thing to say. Like. It's such a weird thing to say. Yeah. It's really weird. So that's the end of the story. And then I'm trying to think if I had any more thoughts on the film. Did you like the film? Yes. I saw, I think I saw it when it came out. Yeah. And I saw I it a couple it. years after it came out. Um, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, sometimes I'm scared to go back and see a movie I liked a lot. Right. Because I'm like, oh, it's going to be dated. And there is some, there is some dated elements to this movie for right. sure. Um, but the girls are so good. They're so good in it. I mean, Kate Winslet is like one of our best. Actresses. I remember seeing that and being like, "Who is that?" Yeah, like, from that movie. Like, I mean, I liked both of them. She's amazing in that movie. So yeah, I mean, it was cool to see her again, like back before she was right. really a big star. Right. I thought it was good. I mean, I still think it's a good movie. The yeah. fantasy sequences are definitely just not my thing. Right. Like, I definitely was kind of like, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, I'd rather see them. Right. Even though I know the fantasy was a part of their lives. I'd rather see it not portrayed. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, like I said before, it's a very Peter Jackson thing. He's a very surreal director. 
Yes. So I think it's not like a necessarily a complaint. It's just something I don't care for. Yeah. And I could have liked it better without it probably. Right. But I still liked it. So. Right, right. And it did, it does hold up. So I would say go check it out. So uh, yeah, that's that. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, obviously I don't want our listeners to think I'm like, yeah, these girls rock. Like I just think I just think the story is so compelling to me because we know so much about their inner lives. Yes. Because of the diary entries and because just of their personalities. Well, when I was doing this, I was looking for things. A lot of these like lists would pop up about like child, like children who murdered. Right. And it's definitely a different ball game because they're coming from a place where they haven't exactly developed a certain part of their brain. And obviously these girls were a bit older. Right. So it is an interesting thing because it's like they don't have that idea necessarily a lot of permanence or like because they didn't de- they didn't plan the the aftermath to me that says so much that they yeah. just thought I mean it also could in, it could indicate their age but it could also indicate the narcissism like oh we'll just do it and people will think it's an accident yeah we're geniuses right well also the idea that like well people are gonna die anyway like why not just have my mom die now when I need it to happen <laughs> like, right and like I did like reading her diary but I didn't want to just like quote her diary forever but reading it this one thing I found the person who like would quote her and then they would break down like this s was swiped like they had like this handwriting analysis right too and I was just like I can't like no get into that now but I might go back and kind of look at some of them right but yeah it was we interesting post that it was interesting to read her um her diary because it was sort of like did make her even seem more childlike yeah it's just sort of like and tomorrow's like oh it's like christmas morning oh my god it's so scary it is really scary right it's i mean like kids killing their parents those stories because that has obviously happened before yeah (laughs) many times uh that's like i mean it's like chilling well there's like a lot of taboo to the idea that you kill your mother in right. particular. Right. Like, it's just like a horrible. It's awful. And her mom was not an abusive parent. No, so no. It's not like. There wasn't anything that yeah. pushed her to the edge with her right. mom. It you was can make sense of it if it's like an abusive situation or. It was literally them just not getting their way. Yeah. The adults in her life weren't harming her necessarily. No. It was just more like this excitement all of a sudden came into her life. Right. And she wanted that and not, didn't want to lose it. Right. But, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I always found, like, the thing I find the most fascinating about this case is just their relationship together. Yeah. And how they really um, co-signed everything that the other person thought. There was so, there was never any, like, regulating of, like, or talking to any, anyone, either one of them down from the ledge of, like, no, that's actually not a good idea. It's like they thought all of their ideas were brilliant. They co-signed everything. Right. And it helped, I think, that Pauline definitely went along with Juliet right. no matter what. Right. So that sort of gave Juliet free reign to do whatever she, I mean, they definitely were just like a perfect storm of totally. a relationship. Totally. Um, but yeah, so that's Good story. That. Thank you. That was really good. So check out our Facebook page yeah. if you want. We'll probably post pics and links about this story. And we'll do it on Instagram too. Uh-huh. I haven't posted on Instagram in the past couple of weeks, uh, but I will post about this one. Okay. So yeah. yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye.